Hello and welcome to the Modern Divorced Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Tarasio. I'm the owner of Modern Law, a family law firm in the Phoenix area. I've been a divorce attorney for more than 15 years. I've got four kiddos and I'm divorced myself. And on this podcast, we're going to cover everything related to divorce, be it legal issues, financial issues, children issues, blended family issues, counseling, mediation, and more. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Modern Divorce Podcast. We have got a very special episode coming up today that I am very excited about. And I'm joined by two lovely people today. Internally, we've got Sarah Incarnation, who is on our marketing team, and I'm so happy that you will get to meet her. And this topic was very near and dear to her heart. And so we are talking today with solicitor Tracy Maloney, who is an English solicitor. And the first thing we're going to talk about, well, that I want to know is the difference between a solicitor and a barrister, but we're going to talk about all things English divorce law, monarchy, and just really explore the topic um, with our friend here, who is the queen of TikTok. Is that right? <laughs> so they say the legal queen. <laughs> the legal queen of TikTok. I am uh I can only aspire to be like you because I, I love TikTok. It's so fun. It's my most fun yeah. platform. So welcome to the it show. Really thank you guys and thank you so much for inviting me. It's an absolute honor to join you on here today. So give us a little bit about your background and your story. So I started life as a barrister um, when I first qualified, um, and I did that for about five or six years. Um, And because you're in court all day and you're prepping for court the next day on the evening, it wasn't conducive to family life. So then when I got married and I had my babies, I decided, actually, I'm going to make the transition over to being a solicitor, because then at least I would get some of my evenings and my weekends back. Um, Been practicing solely family law now for just over 20 years, Um, have worked in all different environments, whether it be my own firm, corporate firms or just on my own at home, which now I'm currently doing after lockdown. So plenty of experience, not just of the family law cycle itself, but also of the different corporate entities that we have here in the UK. Wonderful. So can you explain what is the difference between a solicitor and a barrister? Yeah, so typically a solicitor will stay in the office. We will have, you know, anywhere between sort of 100 and 150 clients. And we are doing all the um, advising, all the prep work for court, all the paperwork. We will then hand that brief over to a barrister who then will do all the advocacy. Solicitors can do the advocacy, but because we're more office based and the barristers are in court all day, every day, they have the expertise. So it's, it's the same job that I I believe you guys do over there, but only one person will do it in, in the US, I think. Whereas over here, we kind of share that role. Whereas, is that right, Billy? Do you guys do both core and office? You're, yes. you're doing Yeah. That's very, very interesting. So I, there are lawyers who do not um, litigate and they're called transactional lawyers, but most of us who practice family law do both, do both the the office work and the court work. So very, very interesting. And in some ways it must be more efficient. Although I would think it would be hard to try a case in court if I didn't really know and understand, if I hadn't done all that prep work. So I think it would be harder, maybe under your system. 
I, I would have to agree with you there because not only is it harder as a barrister, I think, to pick up a brief, chances are the night before, but also you're very reliant on your solicitor to give a good brief to actually get all the details down. And if the solicitors, I think, went to court more, it would probably serve the, the client better. Interesting, but you're not allowed. We are allowed. I think that a lot of, because we have the two professions, the solicitors don't get that much court training and court exposure. Mm. Almost from when you're a training solicitor, you're taught how to do a brief and a bundle to counsel. So what you find is the solicitors coming through lack the confidence to do the advocacy. They really don't want to dip their toe in there because they just haven't had the training or the exposure. But you, you're definitely allowed to do it, 100%. How interesting. And one of our topics today was going to be the difference between the American system and the British system. So that's yes. a huge difference. What else? Well, I, I don't know, Billy. I was hoping you could help me out here because let's just take family law for a second. We have three different areas, if you like, that run very distinct from each other. So let's take the typical divorce couple who then want to sort the finances out. That has nothing to do with the child custody arrangements. And am I right in thinking that in the US, it's all wrapped up together? Yes. So what you're describing is what we would call a bifurcation and bifurcation sort of indicates two, but it really just means we're going to chop the case up and deal with one issue at a time. Now, certain states do it that way. For instance, North Carolina, I know, has uh, a different track sort of in court for spousal maintenance versus, you know, the child issues versus the property division. And so it sounds like that's how you do it in yeah. Europe. Interesting. It, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's all dealt very separately. So we can't start the financial proceedings until there's a divorce petition on foot. However, we, we don't have to then do the finances as part of the divorce. You know, many people in the UK will simply go through the divorce process, get their decree absolute and don't do the finances. And then maybe come back in five years time and say, we want to sort the finances out now. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Whereas in the US, it's that everything's being dealt with all at the same time, which actually I think is a good thing. I, I think that's a good thing because it gets messy if you've been divorced five years. I had a, I had a client, a new client come on today and she got her decree absolute in 2012 and they still own a house together in joint names. She, they don't live together. He moved out years ago. Um, but she now she rang, rings me to say, OK, Trace, I've got the decree. Absolute. We had that 10 years ago. But now I want his name off the mortgage. And it's just it's bizarre to me. Whereas I think you guys, you, you that would never happen, would it, in, in the US? No, the divorce is definitely like, um, well, it should be. The goal is for all of the uncoupling to be done, all of the financials to be split. So I don't even understand how that would work. So like, for instance, the retirement accounts, how do those get divided? Well, they're not. That they're not divided. The, the contributions that we would divvy up during the divorce stops at decree absolute. Okay. So you lose 
pension entitlement once the decree absolute is pronounced. But let's say you've been married for 20 years and you haven't gone through with the finances. You have to unpick and go back through those 20 years using perhaps a pension actuary to then decide how much of the pension part to lift out. So it get, it can get really complicated. Interesting. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm also interested to know how you all are treating the issue of spousal maintenance or alimony. So again, we have to have a divorce petition on foot. It's really hard to get maintenance, really hard. And the easiest way to explain it to you is we will have the client complete an expenditure schedule. And let's just say that then allows us to identify that they need perhaps £2,000 per month. And then their income is only £1,500 per month. The amount of spousal maintenance we claim would be the deficit. But the reason why I think it can be a little unfair is because spousal maintenance is based on your most basic needs. So in that expenditure, you can only put down living costs, you know, your gas, your electric, your fuel, your insurance. There's no allowance really for any of the luxuries that you may have experienced during the marriage. So I, I do think that's a little unfair, if I'm honest. It's quite harsh here. Okay. All right. And then is property divided equally all the time? No, absolutely not. So if you are the person that has the children, you will get more. Perhaps if you are older, you will get more. So sometimes there's no children, but you'll get more that way. If you have medical conditions, if you earn less than your spouse, you may get more of the equity in the property. So there's about seven or eight factors that we will look at that will justify us moving away from 50-50. That's easier to get, actually, than spousal maintenance. That's a lot easier to do. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure in your in the UK if that's if that's the case. Like, is it state by state or is it a, a law of the country? So we have one law for England and Wales. Wow. One law for England and Wales. That's it. It's it's a different jurisdiction in Scotland. So I can practice all over England, all over Wales. The, the law is exactly the same. But Scotland and Northern Ireland are out of our jurisdiction and they have their own legal governance there. Very, very interesting. Um, one last question on the differences between our systems, and then I'll let Sarah dive into the fun <laughs> and juicy stuff. Uh, do you all have a presumption of joint custody and equal parenting time? So we, we attempt to, in the language that we use, our child orders are now called shared care. But when a matter comes before the court, it's very much dependent upon the status quo. So what has the routine been up to that? And, you know, in particularly in the British culture, it, the children do tend to stay with mom. You know, it, it's more of a traditionalist approach here. Mm-hmm. So typically mom will get the kids and therefore by default will get a larger slice of the matrimonial asset pool. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's definitely not assumed because 50-50 just it's not unheard of. It's just rare. Ultimately, the child has to live in one house. We're not big on 
having the kids, you know, with mum one day and dad the next day or week on, week off. The courts don't like that, you know, unsettled approach for children. They like it to be a little bit more consistent Mm -hmm. and just status quo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And so the parent that does not live with the children, how often do they usually see the children? So if we take a typical case where the children live with mum, dad's probably going to get alternate weekends, Friday after school, dropping them back to school on Monday. And on the week that dad doesn't see the kids, maybe a Wednesday for tea. Got it. Okay. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And now, Sarah, do you want to take over and ask about all of the juicy stuff? Yes, I would love to. Um, Tracy, as I as I expressed, you were so excited to have you on the podcast um, to be able to talk about this. Um, as you mentioned earlier, and as Billy mentioned earlier, I really love this topic of the British monarchy. I always have. Um, ever since I was a little girl, I know a lot of Americans kind of shared the same feeling um, of the royal family and whatnot. Working for a family law and divorce firm has kind of been able or kind of let me look at the royal family in a different light um, in a good way. But just in terms of um, how divorce works and and how it's influenced a lot of things, especially in society. So I kind of want to start with something that I think a lot of people don't know about and they should, which is how Queen Elizabeth II um, What's the proper way that we should refer to her, actually? The queen. The queen. Okay. We just want to make sure. So how Queen Elizabeth II ascended the throne? So um, it, originally, we had a gentleman called King Edward that sat on the throne. And he was king. He, he was king and um, he ruled England. And he met an American lady who was twice divorced, Mrs. Simpson, Wallace Simpson. And because of that, he fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. And of course, it was not accepted. You could not then marry anybody that had been divorced, let alone twice divorced. I mean, it was (laughs) the scandal. (laughs) And the reason for that is that because our monarch is head of state, so they're head of our Church of England. And the Church of England back then did not believe in divorce at all. So it would be a huge conflict for the monarch, who is our sovereign, to then marry somebody who had been divorced. So he had to abdicate. And it was his choice. And the English people were distraught. But he decided to step away from the throne And having already been made king, it was huge. I mean, obviously, I wasn't around then, but it was absolutely huge because he had to hand the crown over. And not only did he have to hand the crown over, but he had to leave the UK. He was not allowed to remain here. So the crown then went to his younger brother, George, who was a really shy man, very, very shy man. And for those of you that that have read a little bit about um, our royal history, He had a really bad stutter, a really, you know, so his public speaking wasn't great, but the crown fell to him um, and he took it on board. He was already married at that time and had two little girls, one called Elizabeth and one called Margaret. So as a consequence of Edward falling in love with Wallace Simpson, we now have our queen today because she was George's eldest daughter. Wow. 
Elizabeth's mother, so our Queen Mary, who's passed away now, um, hated Edward for that, absolutely hated him for that, because obviously it placed not only her husband with all that pressure of being the monarch, and he had no training for that, you know, Edward would have received all of the training for that. Similarly, similar, similarly, I can't get my words out. Similarly to Charles, who has had all the training above Andrew and Edward now. Do you see what I mean? So George would have known, obviously, the, the rules of state, but he he wasn't raised to be king. So his wife was very annoyed at that, and more so because then she knew her daughter was going to take over sovereign so that was a lot of pressure on on her daughter elizabeth and it was difficult for the sisters you know as as you may have seen through the crown but when elizabeth then became queen it was very hard for her and margaret because they they weren't expecting to land that role definitely and and one thing i think is so interesting is how young queen elizabeth or the queen was when she when she ascended the the crown she was i think 26 years old. Wow. Um, because her her father, he passed away pretty young. Um he, he was 52, I think, um, uh, was and died from lung cancer, unfortunately. Um, so she came to the throne really young. Um, I think if I'm right, she did only have two children then. She had Charles and Anne. Um, she didn't have the other two at that point. Um, yes, yeah, she was 26. Mm. Um, so She's been on our throne for, we celebrate her jubilee this year, mm-hmm. 70 years yep. of garden parties and street parties on the 4th of June. Ah, I'd love to be there. Um, one thing I, I uh, you mentioned was her sister, Princess Margaret, who also a lot of people don't know is just an icon herself. She was beautiful. She was fun. She was um, the queen's best friend. I mean, they had an amazing relationship from what I know. And Princess Margaret... Uh, her first love or her, the person she, she wanted to marry, um, this person, from what I recall, they were not allowed to be together because this person was a divorcee himself and Queen Elizabeth, the queen had to, um, she had the final call from what I recall, if they were allowed to be married, she had to make that decision. So this is the second time in her life that divorce has affected her in a huge way without her being the one getting divorced. Yep. And it it would have been so hard for her because at a time when when all that was happening, his name was Captain Peter Townsend. um, And Margaret did fall deeply in love with him. And he again, he was divorced from his wife. So, you know, right from the offset, it was taboo. But the Queen had three hats. She had her hats as a sister and desperately wanted Margaret to be happy. Then she had her hat as the monarch. But the most important hat in that decision was as sovereign and head of the Church of England. And she couldn't go against the law that said any of the royal family, particularly the royal family, could not marry a divorcee. It just wasn't allowed. The Queen actually found a loophole for Margaret in that she could have married him, but not under the affiliation of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Margaret felt very let down. And prior to that, she had told Margaret, if you wait till 25, we will be able to find a loophole here. And they sent, because Sir 
Captain Townsend was part of the military and they sent him away for a long time. So Margaret endured that and waited and waited and she turned 25 and Townsend came back and they wanted to get married. And that's when the Queen said to her, absolutely, you can, but not under the Church of England. And Margaret felt so let down. And I think the strain of it all, Margaret loved and adored and supported her sister. And I think when it came down to it, she was also willing to give up the love of her life for the monarchy. She did that for the monarchy. But it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because then Margaret went on to marry Lord Snowden. Very tumultuous marriage, very dysfunctional, very aggressive and ultimately ended in divorce. Wow. Which is, I believe I heard, was the first divorce in the royal family, in the British royal family in a couple centuries. So it was a huge deal. Deal, A huge deal. Margaret kind of got away with it in in a way because Margaret was beautiful, charismatic. She was our party queen. You know, she was all the things that we almost wanted our queen to be, but our queen couldn't be because she had her place. So Margaret was almost that release. And, you know, it kind of expected. It's like Margaret getting a divorce, of course. You know, from then Margaret was seen with younger men and she was always, uh, she liked to drink and, you know, so, but you're right, Sarah, it was, it was our first divorce. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then after that, there's been a whole series of royal divorces and three of them, which were the queen's yeah. children her, themselves. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So Anne was the first to then get divorced Um, followed by Andrew, and in the same year, Charles and Diana. Um, So they all all cracked on with divorce then. Sure. Let's talk about our beloved um, Princess Diana. Uh, At least in American culture, she, I can speak on, she is, she's an icon to us. I mean, I, I remember being so young and like having my mom cut the hair off my Barbie dolls because I wanted them to be like Princess Di. And I was maybe like, three when she when she passed away I was so young and I remember that was the first time that I like had a you was like familiar with the concept of death I mean it was just so moving um so Princess Diana a lot of people I don't think know that she did struggle with mental health before during after the divorce absolutely she did um you know and and I think that's what um makes Diana the queen of all our hearts because you know we there's not many people that you will speak to in England that don't hold the utmost sympathy for Diana and what she had to go through she was 19 she was 19 and Charles was 31 I mean the age gap alone was was fairly large he was clearly in love with Camilla always had been always had been. Um, But she at the time was married. She wasn't divorced then, but she was married. Um, And Diana was, you know, the queen was getting impatient. Maybe not the queen, but the system, you know, the system behind our our monarchy was getting impatient because this was our future king and he was now 31 and had a reputation of being a playboy. Let's be honest, he was a playboy. Um, So, yeah, it was a very fast marriage. She was given no real training. There was no... um, 
support for her. You know, you'll be aware from all the documentaries, I'm sure that you, you've watched, Sarah, that when the engagement was announced, she literally couldn't get into her car and, and move, you know, leave her flat in Kensington because she'd be surrounded by press constantly. Um, well, and yeah, the, the question, how was she chosen? How, how did this mm. unlikely match end up together? So Charles had actually gone out with her sister, Sarah, oh. and they were part of like a polo ring, that society. So he had just been seen talking to Diana. Diana was then invited for some dinners um, and there was a little bit of matchmaking behind the scenes and she was sort of selected, shall we say, as oh. a suitable was very young we are told that she was a virgin she hadn't had a boyfriend <laughs> and was the perfect um you know match for our king to then be the mother of our future heirs um you know kings and queens um but yes yeah, she did she suffered terribly um with mental health and for years had an eating disorder and i don't think any of that was recognized that the royal family of especially the older generation i think the younger generation are much better at this so you know uh, william's generation now zara his cousin they're all much more open about what goes on but back then it was very much you know a stiff upper lip that's the British way. So, Diana, the fact that you can't keep your food down, get on with it. You know, it wasn't recognised back then. She had bulimia. That wasn't a thing. And it definitely wasn't a thing in the royal household. It was all about image and protocol and tradition, steeped in tradition. That is slacking off slightly, which is a good thing. Um, but, yeah, she, she really was almost thrown to the lions, really. Bless her. And what I think is so fascinating is that once, once they divorce, and, and from my understanding, it was actually, um, it was Prince Charles who, who initiated the divorce. He, he, or it was, no, it was Prince Charles, right? The royal family. He petitioned for divorce, yeah. Wow. What a turn. I mean, it was only a few decades before that, that people were abdicating because they, the love of their life was a divorcee. So that's a huge shift in society back then. Um, but it seems like she just thrived after the divorce. I mean, she, it seems like she just became the best version of herself and it was always within, but the power and the confidence and, and the self-security, I think that she had and all while maintaining just being an exceptional mother. I and mean, she always put the boys first. And I think that's something that maybe was seen as a weakness. Um, the controversy when she wanted to bring, you know, Prince William on one of the Commonwealth tours and everyone was mad about that. Um, what can we learn from, from late Princess Diana about going through the struggle of that? And, and I think what, what, possibly compounded that is that they had a legal separation first mm -hmm. and then when they were officially divorced they stripped her of all her HRH so she was no longer to curtsy in front of Diana anymore she was no longer HRH and all that went with that and the British public were very confused about that because here was this amazing lady who was the mother of our future king we didn't have to curtsy to her, but we did to her son. That really messed with our head. And, and all of a sudden there was, but, but I think to answer your question, Sarah, in the light of adversity, she shone. 
she almost, you know, said to the world, it doesn't matter what you what you do to me. It doesn't matter how you treat me. Actually, I am a strong, powerful individual and I am still the future king and the heir, um, heir and a spare, as they say. Um, I'm still their mom. I'm still their mom. And and she, as you say, she went on to just be a power, an absolute force to be reckoned with. Um, and it was it was just such a shame in the end that it all just came, you know, to such a crashing demise in in just such a an ugly way, you know. Sure. And then uh, with with Camilla, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't know that she's been around this whole time. She didn't come around when Princess Diana passed away. She was there from the beginning. The whole time, the whole time when they were engaged, when they were courting, when they were married, were on their honeymoon. All time, the whole time she was there, he she would wear cufflinks that Camilla gave him as a wedding present. They would have late night phone calls. Um, that he he has a place not far from me actually. He's about twenty minutes up the road in Highgrove, um, and that that is his home. Um, and he would spend the weeks in Buckingham Palace or in and around London at Clarence House or what have you. And then he he is um, in Highgrove most of the weekends, and. Um, Diana and the boys wouldn't come at the weekend. They were told not to come at the weekend because Camilla would be there. Camilla is kind of 20 minutes, or she was then in Laycock, which is sort of about half an hour south of me. And then, so they were quite close. They were probably a 45 minute drive from each other. So when she divorced, she kept the house in Laycock and then she would go and spend the weekends with him. And we know this because of various royal members of the household have since told us that absolutely Camilla Camilla was a regular face at Highgrove when they, he was married to Diana. Sure. And they ended up getting married. So uh, Prince Charles and Camilla, they did get married in 2005, which amazing, again, huge shift because she was a divorcee. What happened? Well, we, we had a change in our law in 2002. And I think because we were now on to, I think, divorce number five. So we'd had Margaret first. We'd had Anne. Then we'd had Andrew. Then we'd had Charles. It was recognised that actually divorce isn't seen as a failure. We have to try and let go of this stigma. And the best way to do that is for the royal family to be allowed to divorce. Mm. So the law was changed that whilst the Church of England still don't believe in divorce, mm. if you are unfortunate enough to be divorced, then we will allow you to remarry. But only once. Hmm. You cannot mm. remarry if, that, if you've been divorced twice. But you, you only get one shot at this. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. Wow. So that. Charles and Camilla to then get divorced and of course sub subsequently Harry and Meghan because she is also a divorcee. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about Harry and Meghan real quick? I, I know they're not divorced, but as you mentioned, um, Meghan was, is a divorcee. Um, she she isn't really liked here in the in the UK. She has she's very unpopular. Harry was always our little prince, you know, and he was we you know our hearts went out to to both of the boys, but particularly Harry when his mother passed away. Aww. And he he does an awful lot um, with 
um, Olympians and especially Paralympians. He, he's really supportive of the underdog Harry, you know, he, he's just great. And all of a sudden, this lady came in and quite quickly took him away. And he's now turned his back on all things British, really. There was a ceremony on Tuesday of this week for the Queen late husband um and harry refused to come back for that and that's his granddad and we we are struggling really to believe that that's harry we are laying the blame squarely at megan's feet, rightly or wrongly <laughs> we're blaming her interesting i don't really know what we think as um as an american society I think everyone's kind of half and half um, what are, what do you know? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I have to say, I'm not, I don't read up on this all the time, but my impression as somebody who's not super invested in this particular subject, forgive me for saying that, um, would be that Megan's very popular, beautiful, loved, charismatic. Um, she sort of has the, the reputation of being a victim of her family and of royal bullying. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's that's what I know. Is that correct? I would say that's pretty accurate. That's yeah. Um, so that's totally the opposite view, I think, that the UK people have of her over here. Um, I think we would we would definitely not um, class her as being a victim of bullying mm-hmm. and a victim of her family. I mean, what what we're being fed here, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's all about perception. It's all about what we're fed, and and of course that we get here is probably completely different than you speak that you get harry has kind of turned his back on the uk right and he doesn't really have anything to do with us anymore and that kind of hurts particularly yeah. william you know william's going to need his brother here for support um and you know harry just doesn't he's made it very clear he doesn't want to be a part of that anymore yeah, it definitely shows us how important PR is, mm-hmm. how important messaging is, because what we're talking about is humans who are having human feelings and human relationships, and they're complicated. And sure. all of this is true. You know, it's true that, you know, it's true that the English people feel betrayed because their prince is gone. And it's probably true that he feels like his wife was rejected by you people. And, yeah. you know, it's just humanity's complicated, as we as divorce lawyers know perhaps better than anyone. Absolutely, Billy. I think you're absolutely spot on there. Um, and, and as much as we love our queen, I think that it would, I think Kate and William will be a breath of fresh air. I think they're going to be more open. They're going to be more um, exposed, shall we say. That's their promise, that they're not going to keep that tight lip. You know, the Queen, you'll never hear the Queen make a comment. The Queen doesn't have a view on anything. Um, But I think Kate and William are going to change all of that. And I think we will learn to embrace the monarchy even more, perhaps, and maybe welcome some um, mediation, shall we say, reconciliation might be on the cards, which would be nice. That would be nice. It would be nice. We have just a few minutes left. So I've I've got a couple questions about how these laws are made and changed. So I've yeah. I heard I've heard that we've got the Church of England that is the law 
but there must be some other law <laughs> and and it governs the entire country. So can you explain to me how that works? So the Church of England will have its own set of rules. You're talking about marriage and divorce, Billy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's yes. Let's concentrate on that. Yeah. So essentially it will be Parliament that make our um, our legal framework. So Parliament will decide on the actual governance the Church of England will then have complete power over recognition. For example, when you say the vows, you know, till death us do part, um, you know, what they want you to, to appreciate is that this marriage is going to be for life and that you won't be entering into a divorce. The fact that, you know, you're over 18 if you want to get married in the church. So it's not so much the laws that we as lawyers would then look at upon divorce. It's more the governance within the church system itself okay. as to you have to have a witness there, for example. These are all rules made by the church. But the actual legal side of things, that's definitely sits with the government, 100 okay. percent. All right. So that's the same as, as in the United States. Many people have religious ceremonies or belong to a religion mm-hmm. that has certain views about divorce. And, and then you either have to go get an annulment or you're kicked out or whatever. Um, but that is so separate from the way that the law is carried out in the United States. And it sounds like that's that's true for England as well. Absolutely. And I think it's just it's a lot easier here because the Church of England is obviously all over England. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't happen in Scotland, um, you know, because they had a different set of rules up there. So our queen isn't head of the Scottish church, only the English church. And I think it's probably easier for us here. We don't have I don't believe as much diversity as you guys in the US. So I would have thought that in the US you have a lot more scope for various religious marriages and therefore different rules. Whereas in in the UK, just by pure definition of the number of people here, I don't think we have as many. Sure. I mean, it's true. So we've got so many people with so many religions who all have their own religious beliefs, but it has no impact on the way the law is carried out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's fair to say here. Mm-hmm. Well, it has just been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today from all across the world. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you so much. And so what's your TikTok handle before we um, end today? Oh, the legal queen. Yeah, the legal queen. Fantastic. I will see you on TikTok for sure. And if people want to get a hold of you, is there a website that they can find you at? Yeah, so it's just um, Tracy at Maloney Family Law. So there we go. It's Maloney Family Law um, if they want to get hold of me here in the UK. Wonderful. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I would ask you to please make sure to rate the podcast, leave a comment for Tracy. And as always, let us know if you have any um, questions or any specific topics you would like us to cover. It has truly been a pleasure, Tracy. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Modern Divorce Podcast. 
Remember, anything you've heard today or anything you read online is not the replacement for actual consultation with an attorney and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Even if you called in and we spoke to you, you are anonymous and we don't have your details and you have not become a client of Modern Law. However, we would love to speak with you or you should seek out the advice of legal counsel or counseling or any other expert near you. And if you have an idea for a show topic or you need to speak with an attorney in Arizona, you can reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at mymodernlaw.com.